Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Dangerous Rhetoric. This is episode 81. You may have noticed episode 80 was pulled down. Um, and But, you know, it's okay. You know, we just, we just get past these things. You know, you can go check out episode 80 on the audio platforms. Um, it was with Mr. Eric Abenante, and we discussed, you know, some very interesting things that you're not allowed to talk about on YouTube, apparently. Um, so go check that out. You can still get it on the website and on the audio platforms and on Rumble and Odyssey. Um, today, episode 81, I have Tracy from Keto and Crime uh, to joining us. Tracy, you just want to tell people about your channel real quick? Uh, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, first of all. It's an honor to be here. I am... Uh... Tracy, Keto and Crime. I hail from Tennessee, USA. I have a channel that uh, study that has three different things. I do horror movies, I do true crime, and I do dark history specifically. So if you're a fan of any one of those things, head over and check me out, please. So today I wanted to talk, first of all, about censorship on the digital platforms, because, you know, this is like, it's like, what's the point? You know, we, we content creators, we sit here, you know, we work hard, we, we, you know, make our schedules align and we sit down, we try to have as honest conversation as possible uh, without, you know, tripping the censors. Mm -hmm. And yet it just seems like it's very, very difficult. It's very, very challenging. Um, Tracy, you were telling me before we started recording, you've had your like videos pulled before on your channel. Yes, I have done um, a couple of, well, I guess, what they considered controversial videos. I uh, covered the Christchurch shooting. I did a two-parter on the Silk Road website. Um, and the Christchurch was pulled. I appealed it. They did let it go back up as age-restricted. So I didn't win that one. I did not win my... Uh, appeal on my Silk Road videos. I don't know why they didn't let, but they made me take them down or they would permanently strike my channel. So just to, you know, keep myself from being limited to a certain amount, to a certain time limit of uploads and not being able to stream, I took them down and I will probably re-edit them and upload them on other platforms, but because I thought they were good videos. They were factual. Yeah. I don't know what they thought was, but that's that's the thing. Those were both historical events, historical things. Right. What con what is controversial about history? You know, it's I guess it's the uh, the on the honest about history is controversial because it sort of runs against uh, folks' political agendas at the big tech companies. Obviously, <laughs> you know, you know I, as a free market person, I understand it's their platform. They can run it like they want. I have a, I'm hundred percent behind that, but if they would enforce the rules equally, I wouldn't have near as much of a problem of it, but it, it's obvious that the rules are not enforced equally. Certain ideas are taken down while other just as radical ideas on the, on another side are left up. That is my biggest problem with it. Yeah, I can see, uh, let me see, there's the screen. So it says, we've reached an appeal for the following, reviewed your appeal. And this was the funny thing here, I was telling Tracy guys before, but you can see here the time, this came in today at 4.28 p.m. I submitted an appeal at 3.31 p.m. So there's not even a way that somebody could have practically reviewed, it's a two-hour video. So there's no way a human could have reviewed that content uh, in that time period. So obviously they're just using AIs to flag word phrase things that, you know, trip their sensors. Um, but yeah, they won't be putting it back up. 
and the strike's gonna remain on my channel. And for more information about warnings and strikes, thank you. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> well, two good pieces of news there. You can continue to appeal that. You can reach out to the support team. My channel got hacked mm -hmm. about eight months ago, and I lost control of it for about a week. And you, even though it took me a thousand and one emails, YouTube did get it back for me. They restored all of my content. Oh, they. Wow. They were very kind in that regard. And I do know that if you continue to email them, you will eventually get a real life person that may be willing to watch your video for you because that's obviously a bot. Uh, there's no way they watch that. Yeah. And I think sometimes depending on the type of content your channel does, I think they're more inclined to trust the bot than they are in other, on other channels, you know, uh, I have a friend that runs a crafting channel. All she does is crafts. So if something happens to one of her channels, she, it's obvious she's getting a real life human, uh, you know, human response. Whereas perhaps because you're a little more political, you know, if you're a little more political, maybe you don't get that courtesy. Shows literally called dangerous rhetoric. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess it's just, uh, and it's the same thing happened to me on TikTok. So on TikTok, I do like short little blips. Um, usually it's just about something that's trending, uh, you know, in the news. And I did one, uh, doing a little analysis on the Joe Biden speech and just talking about, you know, it was less than a minute, you know, a minute video, uh, just talking about the speech and the name. I don't even want to say it now. Cause I'm like, well, this invoke the algo gods. If I say the, the word that was like trending, that was like the P word that, you know, that, you know we use for people who abuse children. Mm -hmm and uh the h word that was the bad guy in germany in the mid 20th century mm -hmm. so that was the trending term it had like 167,000 tweets so i said that on tiktok and i don't know i guess that was you can't say that on tiktok i don't i don't know i don't know they don't tell you exactly the reason um and then i had another one i do this like kind of like sort of tongue-in-cheek uh caricature of uh you know a gender bending uh version of myself i call it gender queer brentley and i'll use a makeup filter to put you know like makeup on and so i look like i'm you know uh, a gender bender and then i'll talk with like you know an accent you know i'll make like a voice up to go with my my whatever it is you know the, depending on the filter i get you know inspired in the moment and they pulled that down saying it was for like inauthentic uh, harassment behavior. I did say, I did in, in the introduction, I used the, the F word for gay people. So maybe I can't oh. use that. But, you know, I'm gay. So I figured I could use the damn word. But I guess since, you know, gay isn't a skin color that it's oh, not, Jesus. it's not obvious. And so, you know, I can't use, I can't use the F word because it's not uh, obvious that I'm, I'm a member speaking of that. Speaking of that F word, I have a question shoot uh, uh i think i brought this up in the chat when you were on uh, carrie smith's live stream but uh the q word queer that was a slur yes. when i was growing up and in my 20s and now all of a sudden did we take it back <laughs> i have no i have no idea you know i used to uh I, I used to like that word because i was trying to like you know pull it back um, and I used it a lot in college, um, because I was, a, I was a little bit more flamboyant in college and I was a little bit more, uh, shall we say liberal in Prague. 
Um, and so, you know, I kind of like rode that, you know, queer thing, but you know, I wasn't actually like bending my gender at all. I was just, you know, mm -hmm. using it as sort of a tongue in cheek. I'm queer, like we're gay, like get yeah, into it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It was just for fun. It was like, you know, whatever. Um, but now it's like, it's, they've turned it into like an identity signifier of some sort. And to me, it's, you know, basically you're just saying that you're non-binary, but that I don't like, I don't even like that word non-binary because like <laughs> non-binaries are literally creating a new binary between people that consider themselves binary and the non-binary people. So it's this like weird, like I'm non-binary, but you're just a new binary now. Yeah. <laughs> like, now you're in this like gender androgynous versus traditional gender binary. Like it's, it's it's almost as if it's so such a drag for you know I don't want to loop everybody in but you know younger millennials Gen Z you know it's like it's almost a drag for them to be just normal <laughs> you know just to be cis straight white black whatever they may be it's just they can't be normal mm -hmm. so they have to like create something else that, that's everybody, just the way i look at it yeah everybody is like a super special snowflake sunflower individual unique person it seems like almost this is the the natural extension of the everybody gets a participation award culture everyone is special everyone is you know some, what, raid what are you doing what are you doing raid <laughs> my dog's being silly um but it's just like, you know, it seems like almost it's an outgrowth of that, you know, that way of thinking where everybody has to have their own special signifier, their pronouns, their, you know, special gender, you know, whatever it is. Uh, so it's just question for them, being gay myself and being a member, of, you know, when I came up, it was LGBT. Everybody knew what those stood for. They knew what it was. They knew where it was. Uh, there was no... If we're so discriminated against, why do you want to be one of us? That's my whole thing. If, if we're like a truly a, and we have been in the past, absolutely go back and read about the Stonewall riots. You know, it used to be illegal in this country or at least somewhat illegal in this country to be gay. Uh, you could lose your job, your housing you could be arrested. It, it, it was bad. It was bad. And we got to the point now that we can legally marry. You know what? I'm happy with that. Same. I mean, we, we've made so much progress from where we were in the 20th century. You know, just the 20th century and the changes that we went through in the 90s to, you know, now where it's accepted, it's celebrated a little bit too much. Um, and it's, it's normalized. And that was a victory. And it was like, we couldn't just have that victory it was like we had to you know the the sort of the funding mechanisms the uh nonprofit organizations you know our glads out there and and other you know organizations that were built around gay rights and 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 progressive issues uh they you know wanted to keep the gravy train going a lot of those th those were jobs those are literal jobs that people were you know getting paid based off of fundraising stuff and so they didn't you know these these organizations didn't go away when gay marriage got approved they they just changed the tact to all right well now we're going to do trans rights it's like we're just moving 
You know, it's the next group of marginalized people, which would be fine in theory if these people were actually being sort of like marginalized and discriminated against. But from for trans people and especially the trans activists, there's this huge fissure in the in the you know you want to call it the trans community or just the trans you know the group of trans people. There's a huge fissure between those who are ideologues and activists and those who are just sort of normal people trying to like live their lives without you know bumping up against their neighbors so much. And, Exactly. I, I have many, many trans friends. I have dated both a trans man and a trans woman. I don't consider myself discriminatory towards them in any way, shape or form. But the majority of my friends, they believe in a binary. They want to be either male or female. They want to blend in and live their lives. They, they look at the activists, the ones that, you know, call me ma'am, you know, when you're as big as a fullback with 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 a beard shouting at people like they're crazy, you know, and I think it is a vocal minority, but unfortunately uh, it's a vocal minority. <laughs> yeah. And they do tend to eclipse the, like what I think of as almost like normal or based or conservative trans people mm -hmm. um, because they're out there screaming, you know, and then the media apparatus is amplifying their message because they're on board with it. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, it's it's a quandary. It's a big problem because we've had we had Sarah Higdon on the show uh, not too long ago, and she's based trans woman. You know, she knows that she's actually a man, um, but she has a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, mm -hmm. and she just feels better living as a woman. And she's not trying to like you know, and she thinks that it's not right for children. You know, she transitioned as an adult, like so. These are a lot of like, and I think a lot of this is the normal. Uh, normal view of the issue. And it's just, we have all these crazy people and this medical industry now, which is just, you know, churning, you know, these, these surgeries out, you know, 25 to $75,000 a pop to have their breasts removed, to have the, the vagina or the phalloplasty, uh, not to mention just, you know, constantly being on hormones, cross-sex hormones, puberty blocking chemicals, uh, we're talking like millions of dollars probably over the life of one, you know, trans person in terms and of you're literally there's dozens of surgeries involved. There's so you're much. on hormones the rest of your life. Yes. And hormones. I, I live with a medical researcher and she tells me all the time that hormones, not necessarily, not necessarily what they use for trans, but hormones in general, even for women, you know, women of a certain age, like myself, you know, in the late, in my late forties that start to go through the change and we might have to go on hormone replacement. There's even issues with that and that, you know, there's osteoporosis, there's, you know, cancers that are linked to that. And if you start somebody on that, like 20 years ago for a, a pretty much, you know, optional reason, I mean, I hate to use that word, but optional reason you're looking at, possible cancer, possible osteoporosis, the lack of an orgasm. There's been actual studies, you know, if they would tell the truth about these things, I think more people would make an informed decision. But when you have parents that are woke, that are wanting to be one of the, you know, one of the premium pack gang, they look um, at their child or a girl who's a tomboy or their son that is a, a little bit of a feminine. And they think, oh, trans, when they're probably just gay. 
Yeah, and I was going to say, it's pretty normal for little boys to be more androgynous because they don't have the advantage of having testosterone pumping mm -hmm. through their system and that it makes them a little bit more androgynous. You know, also the immaturity, it makes you more androgynous. You have enough time to develop those characteristics. So parents looking at their kids and seeing, you know, like feminine boy or like, you know, tomboy girl, it's just like, that's just, that's just normal. That's just that's a normal child. <laughs> 90, 95% of them will grow out of it and become a normal, yes. quote unquote, cis man or woman, yes. straight. Other 5% will probably be gay. And now but they're still cis. Yeah. And they're taking these kids at, you know, eight, nine, 10, uh, what they call, you know, Tanner stage two. And they start giving them the puberty blocker. I think it's called Spirolactone or Lupron. Mm -hmm. Um and Lupron is the generic puberty blocker. The spirolactone is specific for men who are under the age of 30. They have to give that to men uh, either with or before they take the cross-sex, the estrogen, because it uh, blocks the action of testosterone. And that's important for giving the cross, because you can't just like throw estrogen into a system without blocking the testosterone. Uh, and this chemical spirolactone or spirolactone or whatever it's, you know, whatever it's called, um, it causes psychosis and it can cause the exacerbation of depression, anxiety, erratic behavior. And this is known, this is established in the literature. It's not, you know, like something, I didn't know this until one of our D trans guests brought it up to me. It was, uh, we were talking to Richie, uh, Tulip R. And Richie told me about the Spyro and then I did a deep dive on it. And I was like, oh my God, they literally give these people who are naturally, you know, have a higher tendency to become morbid with things like depression, anxiety, and erratic behavior. They give them a chemical that makes those things worse, knowing full well it makes those things worse. And they tell them, you know, oh, look out for this, you know, a little bit, maybe, depending on the doctor and how well that they do their, their job. Hence, hence, the hence the percentage of transgender people that commit suicide even after medically transitioning. Yeah. And that's the other thing they don't talk about. They don't talk about the, the lack of, you know, success rates or comparing the, uh, you know, pre-op and post-op folks. You know, when, when the outcome of your treatment is not too much different than the outcome without treatment, generally that indicates that your treatment isn't working, or at least it's not working, you know, for generally speaking. And I do think, I, you know, I still believe that there is a, a significant minority of the population that has truly gender dysphoria, mm -hmm. um, for which transitioning does make the most sense. And you know, they live the rest of their lives transitioned as the opposite sex. And you, you generally can't tell uh, if they, you know, did it in their 20s or, uh, and, and, you know, like folks like Blair White, they like pass, like Sarah can pass, you know, like they just, it's just a matter of, you know, whether or not you have the, uh, the willingness to sort of like, see in the nuance and the shades of grays. Cause I, I feel like a lot of people, uh, and this is kind of one of the things that I got worried about is that there's this pushback coming and it's, they're targeting not just trans people, but also like the gays and lesbians. And we're being sort of like all piled up together. And it's, you know, sort of the result of the forced teaming, you know, they, they put us all together. And then, so we take the blame for when there's a little bit, you know, like a few predators using the community as a smoke screen or a shield. Exactly. Uh, so don't take children to drag shows. No. Having, having managed gay bars, I can tell you 
they're not a place for children unless you're at a, you know, specific Mrs. Doubtfire kind of show for kids, specifically for kids in a non-bar area. Do not take them to a, a, a gay bar. Just don't and do not take them to a drag show, just like I would not take them to a strip joint or a burlesque show. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Miss Doubtfire because I think it's so kind of cool how that sort of shows us an example of how you can, there is, there may be such an, a thing as child appropriate drag. Mm -hmm. And the example is like Mrs. Doubtfire. And even in the, sh in the movie, at the very end of the, the movie, it's like the character had, uh, you know, come into this, like it's its own television show. Mm -hmm. And so that's how like sort of the show ends is with Mrs. Doubtfire. Like she's on TV now, like she's got she's her own a, show. Got a and, kid show. Yeah. She's doing like an educational film, like an educational show for like kids. And if only like that was how it was being handled here in our world, it's like, but no, like that, that's what exists in the fictionalized universe of Mrs. Doubtfire. And in our universe, we get like literal burlesque shows and and stripping and and it's ah, it's just so depressing <laughs> and it's not just the show itself you're in a bar and i have seen what happens backstage with drag kings and drag queens it no it, it's not a place for children nah. it's just not and nah. you're making things harder for the lgbtq community when you do things like that yep you're making it so much harder and people are going to start pushing back and just like one side has pushed too far, the other side's going to start pushing too far and we're going to start losing rights. As a result. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, and, and that can have like people, I feel like sometimes, oh, sorry, it's loud here. So I feel like sometimes people think that just because, you know, the tide of history or the, the pendulum has swung one way, it will never swing back the other way. Like, they can't even fathom going back to a, you know, a country where, uh, you know, homosexuals were openly derided in public or, you know, all of them were considered perverts and predators. Like we could get back there. It is possible. And it's only, you know, with constant vigilance and, uh, you know, monitoring of what's going on and done in our name as homosexuals that we can sort of prevent that from happening. And that was one of the reasons that I kind of with Daniel and I wanted to start the show too. Mm -hmm. That's to let to let everyone know that there are gays like you and me and many others that are not crazy cuckoo cachoo off the other end. That we're just people that want to live our lives, protect children. We're patriots. Wow. You know, we believe in telling the truth. There's a lot of us like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say we're probably we're easily the majority of you know gay people. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just the, the, the minority tends to be very vocal and they get the, the propping up from the system. Um, speaking of the community, I went down a rabbit hole today because I got, also, so let me preface this story. I got a really weird advertisement on Facebook. I was just scrolling through Facebook and I got this like weird advertisement for like a face mat, like it's, it's like face jewelry. Let me, I'll, I'll pull it up here and show you guys. Um, so it was for like this stuff, right? 
And I'm like, this is such a weird ad. Like, why would Facebook, you know, I guess it's, I don't know. This, they thought what I was that. It's like a mask, like a decorative mask. Yeah, it's like a decorative mask. It's about as effective as, uh, you know, N95 or surgical. Uh, joking, <laughs> joking, joking. That was a joke. Joking, joking. I think I think YouTube has lifted those restrictions. <laughs> oh, they did, they did right? Again, who knows? I don't know. I was like, whatever. Um, but anyway, so like, and then I remembered my friend sent me a message like a couple of weeks ago, and he was like, you know, I'm getting these really weird targeted ads on Facebook, and I, I find them disturbing and almost like like just just look at them. Like <laughs> these are the ones that he sent me, uh, and they're both for audiobooks on Audible. The mood. Camp the Nudo, Courageous? The Nudo Twins. So this is actually a story about uh, two twin boys who uh, end up in a, like, a four-way relationship in, you know, high school, like, having, like, adult sexual relationships. We'll go over and I'll, I'll show you. Uh, and then this one. With adults or other children? Uh, with other, I think, other children. Um, but it wasn't exactly clear. I'll go, I'll have to go back and see. This one is about the story of a, uh, I think a 14 year old boy. He goes to like a gay conversion camp and like falls in love there, you know, with another like boy. And I'm just like, how much of this like weird boy on boy smut exists? And so, you know, I went to Amazon and I looked at these authors. So we got Daniel Elijah Sander Fur. So if we go to, you know, Amazon and we look up uh, Daniel Elijah Sanderfer, he's got like a lot of these stories. <laughs> so let's just go to Camp Courageous. By the way, Camp Courageous has two books. There's part one and part two. Um, here we go. And this is the description. They say these are the best years of my life. I'm not sure I agree. Sitting on the threshold of not quite a man, not quite a boy, isn't a very comfortable place to be. My name is Jonah, and in 1999, I was 16. That summer was the summer that changed everything. Oh my god, so cliche. <laughs> my parents sent me to a camp to find God, and I found him in the eyes and actions of a sweet country boy named Neil. This is a story about love, first love, so pure and true. This is a story about faith and finding the courage to be who you are, regardless of what anyone else thinks. It's a story about growing up and realizing what makes you the measure of a man. Hint, it's not about how tall you stand or how wealthy or intelligent you are. And it goes on. But yeah, basically, it's a story about this guy's... It looks like this guy's personal story told through, you know, the fictionalized version of... An author, and again, we see here reading age 13 to 18. Uh, it's 60 pages, so it's obviously not like that long. Right. <laughs> so one wonders like how much of this is actually just smut. You know, I'm really, I'm tempted. Well, this is I may have a slightly different take on this than you. Um, take, go as, for it. As someone that loves uh, romance novels. I, I grew up reading literally from the, from puberty on, I was reading, not Harlequin, I was reading the, the good stuff. Uh, Madeline Baker is one of my favorite authors because she does romance novels in a historical context. They're, you know, Ooh. set in certain eras. I really like that. So yeah, I mean, it has all the smut, but they're usually good stories too. So being that I read those as a kid, I don't see so much of a problem with them being there and available for, you know, teenage boys that may be experiencing same-sex attraction. 
if that's what they're attracted to. I don't see that as so much of a problem as long as it is geared toward teenagers going through puberty that have all the same, you know, desires that every teenager going through puberty has. Now, if they're writing those for little children, I have a problem with that. See, I don't know how much of this is like, you know, I, I haven't read it. So I don't know exactly what's in there. And it may be like Harlequin where there's practically no sex at all. It's it just, could be. You know what? I, I love you. you know. I did. I So I have a YA novel that I wrote uh, 2014, 15, 16. Mm -hmm. And there is a, a gay romance between two uh, teenage boys. But mm -hmm. none of the, 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 the spicy, steamy scenes. I didn't write that. You know, I didn't describe yeah. that. I just sort of left it off the page. You know, I implied that it happened and then I jump, I go to the next scene. Like I don't, don't dwell on it. Um, so it's possible that this is kind of what's happening here. It's just it's something about the description and the cover art. It's racy. It's a little racy. I, I get that. I mean, I got, I read the babysitter's club too as a kid and you know, I also read Little Women. Little Women, you know, I was kind of disappointed as a kid when I realized Joe was, I mean, uh, <laughs> a, a, a character in there that I thought was a, a girl was actually a boy. I thought, oh, there's actually two girls in here that are in love. No, no crazy. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there, but there's some there's some other ones here that make me. So that was, uh, this is one guy, Daniel Elijah Sanderfer. And he's got like... Like if we just scroll a little bit, boop, boop. And I did not discover like lesbian romance novels until my thirties. But yet I still go back to the original ones that I like, which are the heterosexual ones, because to me, the a lot of the lesbian ones are nothing but smut. That's not what I want. <laughs> See, I want, what I, I want romance. I want romance. You can put some sex in there, but I want romance. Yeah. So at the uh, prodding of one of the, uh, who I think is the smartest lady alive, this uh, writer and researcher, her name's Laura Knight-Yachek, um, she suggested that we read some original romance uh, novels because the way that the male character is portrayed and the character arc that the male character goes through is very representative of the maturation, the romantical maturation of, of, of a man and how he goes from being sort of an immature, uh, you know, rough around the edges, sort of sex obsessed young man to being more of a uh, fully functional and capable provider, protector, lover, um, and, and partner. And uh, one of the interesting ones I read was this book called The Beast of Beswick, which is basically a retelling of Beauty and the Beast. Um, it's in a Victorian setting, uh, but it's, and it's not, you know, there's nothing supernatural about it. You know, he's, he's the guy is actually like marred from war and scarring. And he's got like a really beastly personality. He's and so he doesn't get married, and this is a big problem because he's a duke, I think, or something. Mm -hmm. And so our protagonist is this young uh, woman who has been scorned. She was, you know, when she was in, they call it uh, in season, I guess, or like when they go. So when a, a girl comes out, uh, she's like unveiled at court, you know, when she's like sixteen. And then there's a bunch of suitors that approach. And this one suitor that, you know, was approaching her basically uh, tried to have sex with her before their, their wedding. And she rebuked him. 
And so he goes to court and lies and tells everyone that, uh, you know, she was a terrible lay, that she was really nasty. Um, and, you know, he basically totally destroys her name and uh, ends up going after her younger sister years later. And so the girl's like, uh-uh, this is not, you're not gonna, not, not going for my sister. So she goes and she uh, ends up using uh, this relationship with the guy, the Beast of Beswick, in order to uh, get her sister out of this situation. But at the same time, you know, she falls in love with him. Um, he falls in love with her. And it's like, you know, this cute little back and forth of will they or won't they, you know, stay together. That but, kind of re reminds me of a story. I believe it was based on a book, but I remember seeing it as a movie. It was in, it was a 1993 movie called The Man Without a Face. It was um, Mel Gibson and Nick Stahl. Uh, oh, yeah, I remember that movie. A.K.A. Uh, uh, John Connor from T3. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, basically, he Mel Gibson was kind of like that, disfigured. Um, he had been a prep school teacher. And there was rumors that he had, you know, abused this young student of his and then the student killed himself. What had really happened was that the student had a crush on him and tried to, you know, try to <laughs> press Mel Gibson's character. Mel Gibson's character was having nothing of it and rebuked him. And the guy got and they were going they, they were had been somewhere like to a, a college admission, something or something. And the boy got so upset he wrecked the car ended up killing himself and disfiguring Mel Gibson uh, and so now he's trying to tutor Nick Stahl's character to get him into a uh, military school where his father went and he comes to an abusive home life and of course all these rumors starts fly around and in the end Mel Gibson basically chastises him and sends him away because he doesn't want those rumors started again but at the end you know they kind of you see him graduating from the prep school he wanted to go to and then way in the back he sees a masked like a a masked figure with a low brim hat and it's mel gibson there at his graduation it's actually very sweet very 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 similar tale to that yeah no it does it does sound similar i totally forgot about that movie until you just mentioned it's a great movie yeah i should definitely rewatch that i totally forgot about it um but then the other thing that kind of gets me is that, so that's, that was one, you know, that was that one author, Daniel, whatever, Schroeder, uh, Sanderfer. There's this other one that has uh, some other one. Where's it? Here, share screen. Doo -doo -doo. So this is Mark Roeder. I guess that's how you pronounce his name. Um, he's another one of these prolific authors. You know, he's got a lot of these stories, you know, going for, you know, free or two ninety nine, one ninety nine on on Audible here, and uh, this was he's the author of the Nudo Twins. So we go to the Nudo Twins. Uh, and this is the description: Tyler and Tanner are identical twins and best buddies, but their relationship is about to be transformed forever. Tyler grows increasingly uncomfortable with the rumors that haunt him and his brother, but Tanner doesn't want their relationship to change. Wanted or not, change comes. Tyler falls for Charlie, the new boy in town, and Tanner reaches out to help his teammate Iggy, who's crippled in an accident and confined to a wheelchair. As Tyler and Charlie grow closer, Tanner grabs onto the small ray of hope that Iggy may someday walk again and pushes Iggy to make it happen. <laughs> 
Just when he feels he's losing his brother, Tanner begins to develop feelings for Iggy that he never thought he could feel for anyone except his twin. The Nudo Twins is a story of unconventional relationship and the ability to love to adapt to almost any situation. Is it? <laughs> it sounds very sweet, you know, uh, See, you except sweet. for that line about... You you sweet. Know, I hear... <laughs> I mean, I think as long as these boys are the same age, you know, around okay. the same age, okay. I, I feel... It's probably a coming of age story. What about this? I would one? have to read it. To the make youngest it. frat bro ever. <laughs> That's definitely probably not one where they're of similar age. So Richard K. Arbuster the third is fourteen, and he's beginning his freshman year at Indiana University. At least he thinks he is, until his grandfather's ultimatum: join the Alpha Alpha Omega fraternity or return to the dreaded and detested Bratsworth Academy. Richard has no desire to join a frat. He would rather spend his time reading and studying, but has no choice to set out to become the youngest frat bro ever. And from that, I was like, okay, maybe that's innocuous. And then I went down to the reviews. <laughs> and, you know, I, naturally me, I'm just like, okay, let's like, I, I look at the bad reviews um, and start scrolling up. And where was the one that I found? There was one that basically described that he engages in a romantic relationship with a much older college-aged boy, and I was like, uh... yeah, see, that's where I draw the line. Uh... Um, <laughs> knowing that there is a, probably a substantial amount of uh, adults where that... How can I put this? I think Mayo Yiannopoulos, not that I'm a Mayo Yiannopoulos fan, but he actually commented that one time that um, many times that a young gay man's first relation, coming of age relationship is with a much older gay man. And I, I, that's where I draw the line. You know, if this is a 16 year old boy coming of age with another 16 year old boy, I don't look, I look at that the same way as a boy and a girl 16 coming to right. age, coming of age together. But if you've got a 21 or a 22 year old boy and a 16, 17 year old boy, no, I, I draw the line there. And like when you're literally constructing your story so that you can, right. you know, ship a 14 year old boy and, you know, a college aged boy. Mm. Ah, it's like yeah. a little sus. I'm like, I don't know, Mr. Mark Roeder. I don't well, want anybody to think Tracy's okay with this kind of with no, 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 just It's fine. No, no, no. It's just that you know, coming of age stories, I mean, there would have, I didn't have a lot of access to homosexual coming of age stories as a kid. But I know that they exist now, and I'm glad that they exist now, as long as they're in the proper context. Because I don't think, unless a 16-year-old is actually having same-sex attraction, I don't think they're going to reach for a book like that. Yeah, they're so going to go read the Harlequin, or they're going to read the, <laughs> the other stuff. He doesn't actually say how old the age range is here, but in this review, he says, finally, the adolescent romance between Richard and James lacked the chemistry and just didn't ring true to me, whereas I could have believed in a romance between Richard and Dylan if the author had made Dylan maybe two years younger. So it sounds like the older boy uh, was, was too old for it to be believable. Which I, you know, that makes sense to me. Like, I don't think, you know, as a college-aged young gay, I was looking for older guys. There was no way I would, a 14, no. <laughs> um, so it, I guess that's probably, you know, maybe what he's commenting on there. I don't know. But 
there's there's a lot of this stuff and it's not just these two authors you know if you that, hor- that title is horrible <laughs> Horrible. The picture. I mean, like, who is like? Where did he like? I'm just I'm wondering okay, if he goes to prep school. Child. That's obvious, and he can go. But why does he need to join a frat? Can't he just go to college? That's well. I guess that's the thing. Is that that's supposed to be the part? Is that he? Uh, I, you know, and that, I don't know. I don't know. And again, I just like, I don't know. I'll, I could come up with a better title than that off the cuff, and you probably could too. You know, but like uh, some of these stories. I'm like, okay, like farm boys this is another mark rotor one um and this is another one where you know it's about a like 14 year old boy who's you know having his and uh, it's just very disturbing i don't know <laughs> tries to keep his tender under control but it's a difficult task with so many jerks around tk feel like his life been flushed down the toilet but soon he's able to join the football team and then there's finn the hottie newly hired to help out on the farm TK believes he might finally be happy when when he spots the sol- uh, when when he spots a blonde angel and doesn't realize he knows and realizes he didn't know what happiness means. I'm just like these descriptions. First of all, Blah. so cliche. That kind of reminds me of the country. I grew up on country music, still love country music, but uh, "Strawberry Wine" by Dana Carter. Very similar plot there. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I was only 17 and he had a car, <laughs> you know, working through college on my grandpa's farm. <laughs> it's so weird. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know what I think about this. I, I'm probably going to do a bit more of a, di- a deeper dive. I'll probably mm-hmm. end up, you know, writing something critical on, um, on the, on my, on Oh, the- now if they're, if they're, if they're pushing, I couldn't really make a judgment on any of them until I yeah, read them. It's how, yeah, exactly. I'm like, I'm going to have to actually read yeah. some of this. Now, if they're pushing smut on teenagers, you know, I, I do have a problem with that. Now, of course, I'm kind of a hypocrite because I saw that out when I was a, <laughs> a teenager in the form of romance novels. But, you know, I, I, I guess that's kind of where I would draw the line. And also, what are the age ranges represented in these books yeah it just needs more information really i need to know yeah. what the detail level is when they're describing the interactions between these young people and uh you know how much of that is the the, the bulk of the story because i don't know when you have like so much content and it's like a low amount of pages it makes me sus that it's like just smut <laughs> Because yeah. <laughs> there, there is there, and there is a lot of you know there is a lot of gay smut on Audible and on Amazon mm-hmm. that's yeah. not you know it, it's like adult gay smut, mm-hmm. um, and that's fine like whatever like I don't care. Um, uh, but, all the lesbian romance that I've ever lesbian erotica that I've ever seen has all been smut. I'm not into it. I, I like story. I like romance. So I always end up going back to Madeline Baker and just regular um, romance novels. There is something to traditional romance novels that I, I think gets sort of dismissed as just smut. And yes, it does have that sort of smutty component. But like again, I think they they have better stories. You know, they better better I writing. Um, and it's I feel like because it's gay, a lot of times like the the lower quality standard is acceptable for some reason. Well, there's um, nothing else out there. They got to read this or nothing. Let me just throw it out there. 
Yeah. Well, and a lot of the gay stuff is being self-published too. So yeah. there's not an editor or you're lucky if there's an editor that gets an eye on it um, before it gets out there. And it's why some of these descriptions are just so terrible, but I just, I don't know about this. This really drives me up a wall. Um, and it makes me, it makes me nervous. I'm like, how much, like how much of this is, and you know, it's going to be from author to author. It's going to vary, mm -hmm. you know, how much their uh, extreme, the, the smuttiness is, uh, how much they're sort of trying to push that line between adult child interactions. It, it can uh, actually be healthy if it's the right kind of, you know, smut aside, if it's the right kind of romance, it could actually be very helpful to a young person that is experiencing same-sex attraction. Um, for example, I mean, I don't have children, but if I did and one of them came and they came to me and said they were gay or lesbian, okay. And then perhaps I could find them some appropriate romance that would show healthy gay relationships to them. So it could be very helpful in that way. Yeah. You know, I, I, and I think that that thing probably, probably does exist in some form. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, I'm very, I'm suspicious about the, yeah. this, this little rabbit. Well, hole. the fact that one, a couple of them are like 60 pages. I'm like, what are you writing at 60 pages? <laughs> Unless it's a book of short stories, what are you writing? Yeah. It's just like, it's very strange. He's got another one called Wicked Intent. He's got one that's about a bike shop. So some of these, like, also, like, the thing that kind of gets me about his stories, a lot of it is the premise for uh, adult gay pornography. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, this is like, you know, like, boys on the farm or, like, you know, at camp or, uh, you know, in the locker room. You know, all this stuff is just, like... Uh, the, the whole incest thing with the twins, like... Mm -hmm. it, and this is Hopefully the that was an incest. Hopefully they just have a very unique connection with each other, and they didn't <laughs> think they could. I'm hoping. I love what your it was. incredible interpretations. <laughs> I'm hoping. Yeah, no, I think there's there might be room there, but I got a feeling that that was a little that was a bit a little twincest. I'm I'm a little bit of a Pollyanna in a lot of ways. So. Well, it's better to see things with the glass half full as opposed to half empty. You know, you live a little bit longer if you tend to be uh, less cynical and less jaded and a little more happy-go-lucky. But yeah, I don't know. I'll have to do a deep dive on that and uh, get into it. Um, and that's sort I may of go in there. Since some of those look like they were free and I have lots of Audible credits, I may go in there and purchase one myself. And, and yeah, the Audible, I think the Audibles were free if you have like their Audible subscription service or whatever. Mm -hmm. But if you have credits, you could probably get it and then see how bad it is, you know, and then we could, we could actually, you know, we could do part two. <laughs> yeah, do a review. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and like pick out choice uh, excerpts. <laughs> Oh God, we're going to get banned. Um, but yeah, no, that's, that was like the rabbit hole that I went down. Um, and so I thought that was very bizarre and strange. I don't know what to do about it. I think I'm going to end up reading, you know, one of these and sampling maybe a little bit from the authors and seeing if I can uh, find some of this stuff uh, available on there. Well, I'm definitely reading that about the youngest frat boy. <laughs> I listen probably to the farm boys too, just because my curiosity is they, they have like three minute samples on uh -huh. uh, on Amazon that you can like listen to. And 
the writing i listened to one for like about like not even 60 seconds and i turned it off just because the writing was just you know to my ears i was i was offended by the the cliche and the breaking of like rules of things that you shouldn't do um you know your first your first sentence for example should be a hook you know like if you're crafting a story like that first sentence that first paragraph that first page and that first chapter needs to be like the strongest part of your story. Otherwise people are just going to be like, not interesting. I'm going to put it down. I'm not going to, you know, I'm, there's nothing there to keep me coming back. Um, and that the, the intro I listened to, it was just like, I think it was a description of, you know, the character he quotes, um, Romeo and Juliet and talks about a pair of star-crossed lovers. I don't know if it was the youngest frat bro. It might have been that one, or it might have been another one. Um, but basically, he's he's talking about he quotes Shakespeare in the first beginning of his of a story, and then elaborates, you know, in the first paragraph that it was because that he was working on in a Shakespeare assignment. And I was just like, this is the worst way to begin a story. <laughs> I'm like, you gotta like, you you gotta have some your first sentence should have the reader asking questions you should you know invite them to wonder about what's going on you know like uh like the famous opening line from stephen king uh he writes in his dark tower series um you know like the something like the gunslinger uh walked across or like the dark man was walking across the desert and the, the gunslinger followed and immediately you're like, okay, why, who was the dark man? Why is he dark? Uh, why is the gunslinger following him? Why do, what are they doing in the desert? And you read on to find the answers to those questions. Uh, well, speaking of Stephen King, it, you know, there was. <laughs> <laughs> There's some smut in the written there, That chapter after I finished, uh, what did I just read? <laughs> Daniel, I didn't read it. Daniel read the book and was like, uh, I think I just read a scene where they ran a train on the girl and they were all yeah. underage. <laughs> Pretty much. She was supposed to save them by boinking them all. Which, yeah. Again, I, like, I, I just read, you know, you're like, mm, Stephen King, why? <laughs> this is an interesting artistic choice you made here. <laughs> Exactly. have teenagers run a train on the one female in their group uh yeah what was your thinking there why why, <laughs> why? that and had to be after the bus hit him i, I swear obviously you know? it didn't make it into the miniseries and it didn't but thank goodness because <laughs> there was no way um and one thing, actually, I, I kind of lamented the fact they took the racism out of the the newer movies because I feel like the fact that, you know, the Michael, the character, the black character was uh, attacked for being black. And, you know, that was a big component of the set and setting of the original story. Granted, they updated the timing so that it was supposed to be in like the 80s versus like the 50s and 60s. And I guess you could argue the racism wasn't as bad, you know, like 20, 30 years later. But I still feel like it was, it was just a wasted opportunity to yeah. uh, give that character the depth that he deserved. Yeah, to show what is actually true racism versus the kind of race, 
I mean, oftentimes invented racism that we're confronted with today. <laughs> Microaggressions. Microaggressions, yes. I love your hair. Where are you from? <laughs> like, I, that's, that's, that's racism? Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Come on, stop. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times it, when I, working in my 20s when I was thin and spelt, but I would have men tell me, hey, looking good today, Tracy. I, I would like walk on cloud nine when I was told that, even though I wasn't into men. I mean, it was just like awesome. But now that's sexual harassment. Yeah, I mean, it's a confidence boost. Every once in a while I see, you know, I'll get a smile from a, a lady on the street and I'm like, oh, I still got it. I can, I, can, <laughs> I can go straight if I really wanted to. It's the most flattering in the world when a woman looks at me and she's like, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't happen very often because of the way that I dress. I'm not, I'm not what I, I kind of dress like, you know, uh, college student. You know, you can see I'm wearing a Wayland Utani t shirt and <laughs> camo cargo pants. Not exactly what, you know, New York women in their mid 30s are looking yeah. for. Well, the original It also had, and I didn't play It up in the movies either, but there was a lot of latent homosexuality in the in the one of the bad gangs in town. I mean, come on. He, they, they left out all the, all the stuff that really needed to be shown, in my opinion. Yeah, and I mean, they, they did include that little sequence in the beginning that was totally new where the, you know, the monster ate the gay people. We talked mm -hmm. about on your channel. Okay. Uh, and I, like I said, I, I, I liked that. I thought it was good for gay people to be included. And at the time they got, you know, like, I can't remember which gay magazine it was, but one of them wrote like a scathing article about it, you know, saying something like effectively like the movie was gay bashing people. And I was like, no, like we're being included and the evil monster is doing the bad thing to the, to the people. And we're supposed to feel bad for the people and we're supposed to, mm -hmm. you know, hate the monster for it. And <laughs> it's like, how could you interpret that in it's any other fashion? It's just like we talked about, um, on the video that will be released very, very soon. I'm still working on editing it. We talked about how, you know, there's a sudden backlash against you can't have a, a, a gay villain or a trans villain or a non-binary villain. Why the heck not? Yeah. What people, you're telling me that LGBTQ people can't be evil or, or want to kill people for their own reasons? We're not human? Is that what you're telling us? Give me a well-written villain. I don't care what they are. And in fact, you know, historically, we do have really well-written gender-bending or gender-androgynous villains. I mean, Labyrinth is one of my favorite fantasy movies from the 80s. Mm -hmm. And that was, uh, what's his name? Not uh, uh, David Bowie. Yeah. The, uh, and he was famously very flamboyant, very androgynous in the film. And it was all part of the character of, you know, the Goblin King, which... Yeah was it was great it was what made him the goblin king you know and it it's without that that androgyny it would just have been a little bit more boring it would have been exactly. a depth of character the rocky horror picture show frankenfurter perfect villain and he was also kind of an anti-hero he also had a very sympathetic side to him yeah. by the end very well written very well performed by tim curry Ugh. tim curry i swear he's like one of the greats just mm -hmm. One of those, again, I feel like the British trained actors like do such an amazing, because I feel like they take the craft very seriously. No, they do. 
and they get a lot of uh, a, a lot of them have theater experience before they get into film. My um, very first memory of Tim Curry is in Annie, of course, and then uh, Oscar, the movie Oscar. Oscar, I don't and Clue, know. of course. And then Clue, when I finally got old enough to see Rocky Horror. <gasps> <laughs> I remember when I was in college and I saw it for the first time and I was like, what? What is this? <laughs> this, this cultural <laughs> phenomenon is like, I was like, how did this get made in like the 80s? Like I was blown away that it actually like was produced at all. Like mm-hmm. that was shocking. Um. By the way, if anybody hasn't seen Rocky Horror Picture Show, you need to see it. Like, you're missing out. You, you need to go to a live showing with oh. audience participation. Hey, we have the season coming up right yes, now. Yes, you do. Don't don't just, like, find it on streaming and watch it. You need to go see live performance first. Then you can watch it. Yeah, there's, there's definitely... So, folks don't know, there's this, like, weird, you know, culture of having the movie play at like a theater and then everybody goes to the theater you wear costumes you wear your sexy lingerie um and then there will be a a, a second cast in the theater sort of uh, mimicking a lot of the parts and getting the audience involved and it's it's so much fun it's it's really an experience um don't tell them that it's your first time unless you really want to be embarrassed <laughs> just go just go. They and- will give you a, a bag of props to use, and you just use them. When everyone else uses them, there will be a theater troupe that's acting it out live yep. while the movie's playing, and it, it is perfect. awesome. It's definitely the way to experience it if you haven't experienced it uh, for the first time. And go with friends. Like, it's a great, you know, like you and your, like, five best buddies. You just go together and, you know, maybe eat an edible beforehand. Maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a lot of fun. I can't. I can't recommend it enough. Oh, jeez, Tracy, we're rounding around and around an hour. Um, okay. Is there anything else I want to get to? Oh, let me ask you. What did you think about Joe Biden's speech? Uh, it was frightening. Uh, frightening <laughs> really? In a way. I mean, I don't. I wasn't that scared. I mean, I, I was. Know, well, I wasn't scared of him. It's just the whole <laughs> what it could possibly mean. You know, first of all. Okay, I realized that um, Independence Hall was decked out in red, white, and blue. But unfortunately, they had the worst camera angle on him. When all you saw was the red and the black. And then he's... And having watched uh, the miniseries V as a child and being a huge fan of it, he reminded me very much of the alien leader who was an authoritarian dictator in that movie. And that's the first image that came to my head. And I think labeling... 74 million people that voted for Donald Trump as domestic, as you know, domestic extremists was a bit over the top. A little bit, a little over the top. Yeah. Um, I also heard, uh, I don't know if this is true. This is being reported via Steve Bannon uh, that I heard on Timcast, but they're saying that not only was Trump rated, but also 35 of his allies. I saw that. These are donors, lawyers, uh, you know, confidants, you know, people in a circle were also raided. And the rumor is they are going after um, any evidence that they actually did something wrong with the Russiagate and the impeachment. So 
the so like the thing is that some of the documents he took was evidence to that regard that he was you know sitting on until the republicans came back into power and the fbi went after it in order to cover their butts well the, the evidence they're gonna find nothing unless they plant it they're gonna find nothing we spent four years they spent four years trying to impeach the man could never impeach him because impeached he did him, nothing impeached wrong him twice. impeached him twice twice couldn't get the couldn't get the fly. right the Mueller report was a big pile of steaming manure much ado uh, about nothing exactly but yet they spent four years saying that that election election was invalid but yet you can't say it now yeah when we were trying out a entirely new voting system that has never before been done in this country wide widespread mail-in ballot it, it's okay to question that yeah, in my opinion, I agree. I think it, you know, having an open questioning, you know, we're allowed to draw any potential conclusions and look for evidence that you know follows up to those conclusions. You know, either to disprove or prove them, or, or indicate they're right or wrong. I think that would be the natural scientific uh, sort of process that we would normal people would approach. But to sort of make the conversation, you know, like that's why my 80th, uh, our, the 80th episode of DR was pulled down. So as we were discussing, uh, you know, the election and shenanigans around it. And apparently we ran afoul of the censors a little too much. And it's just, it's, it's just bizarre that you can't even have a conversation, you know, just trying to be honest, just trying to, you know, get at the truth with, you know, here's what I think. Here's, you know, here's what I see. You can't even do that on, on YouTube. Uh, and, and then and it, said, for years, they, they questioned the 2016 election nonstop. Yeah. There's still videos of Hillary Clinton and, you know, prominent Democrats questioning the results of the 2016 election on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And yet that's allowed, but you're not allowed to do it the other way. It's just, and they have every right to question it. If they want to question it, if there were questions, yes. I'm glad they did the investigation. Yes. I'm glad nothing came out of it. Right. It makes me more confident in our voting system. But, and, and I'm not saying that Joe Biden did not legitimately win the 2020 election. I'm not saying that. I believe he probably no, did. No. You know, like, but, uh, that's the but thing. But I'm allowed to ask questions. Yes. And here's the thing. Media, media, if you're listening to me, mainstream media, if you had just taken those accusation, accusations as, okay, hmm, let's dive into this. Why don't we be journalists and let's dive into this and investigate it? Oh, there's nothing wrong. And here's why. If you right. had done that, yes. there would not have been all that hubbub, but no, you didn't even want to talk about it. Just like you didn't want to talk about a famous laptop that was circling around. And that has come out that that was absolutely legitimate. Mm -hmm. You buried that. So why would, why would we trust your opinion on the, on the 2020 election validity? Well, it's like so many times the conspiracy theorists have been proven right, you know, through the last two years on, a, on a, across the board on a number of issues. You know, I don't want to get into specifics because YouTube might pull this video down, but it's just, uh, you know, it, it, it's from, you know, one thing to the next, whether it was the efficacy of certain treatments or the, uh, the side effects of those treatments or the origins of a particular respiratory virus. Um, you know, all these things that came out, you know, whatever we were being told from the establishment and the mainstream media was wrong. They were when, wrong. when did they take it seriously? When Jon Stewart made a joke about, you know, if, if, right. if, if, a, if, if, if a chocolatey good virus broke out in Hershey, Pennsylvania, would there be any 
you know, accusation of where it came from. No, I mean, and right. it was a joke, but it, it proved everything that everyone else had been saying all along. Yeah, well, and up to that point too, there was a uh, there was a huge investigative piece signed off by like dozens of scientists in the field that basically said due to the the nature of a particular genetic uh, artifact of the virus, there was like the odds of it emerging in nature that way were statistically impossible. It was like you know one out of trillions of a possibility, and so basically there's no way. And I'm not saying it was a biological weapon. It could have been, but I'm not saying it's a biological weapon that got out. I think it just, I don't think it was planted. I think somebody was careless and walked out of it on the, with the bottom, with it on the bottom of their shoe. And here we are. Or you could have, they could have caught it, you know, doing yeah. that lab. That lab had multiple safety violations. It mm -hmm. was not, it was a BSL-2 lab when it should have been at least a BSL-4. There were so many problems with it and so many red flags that mm -hmm. it's just, you know, it, 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 to say that it came out of a wet market is actually more of an, uh, a wild, crazy, you know, conspiracy theory than to that say that is literally breeding Chinese uh, racism against Chinese people to say yes. that oh, their traditional wet market caused all this shit rather than just say it was a lab accident. Right. Exactly. Which one is less damaging to Chinese people? Right. And look what happened. You know, we had a, you know, all throughout the, the COVID period and the lockdowns, we had incredible amounts of anti-Asian violence. Uh, and a lot of that was, you know, being because of the, the association, just the association of the virus coming out of China. You know, for a while you couldn't even, you know, I think Donald Trump famously called it the China virus at one point. And for a while you couldn't do that because it was considered racist. <laughs> It's just like, you know, we've been, you know, like in 1979, it was Spanish the flu. Hello. And, and the deal of it is, it didn't even come from Spain. It originated here in, uh, it originated in Canada and the U.S. But yeah. yeah. Actually, the first case in the U.S. was on a military base in Kansas. Kansas. Mm -hmm. which makes it, you wonder, it's just like, huh, you know, and I think the re the only reason it was called the Spanish flu was because of some weird way that the media um, the, the it, cases were being covered up here and they weren't there. The media Spain, Spain media was actually covering it, actually covering it. Yes. Yeah. And so it's now it's remembered as the Spanish flu when actually it was, should have been like the Kansas flu. The Kansas flu or Canada flu or. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know, like we got to blame other people. We can't take any responsibility for ourselves. Exactly. <laughs> oh, what a thing. The queen, queen Elizabeth. Oh yeah. I for, totally forgot about the queen. It was funny because like it happened for like a day and like, I was like, oh, she finally passed. You know, I kind of just like had been expecting it, you know, latently for like years because she's, she's old. Well, I guess I did, but then I, she was just, she's been queen of England since I've been alive. And so like, she was just, a, she was a constant. Right. So I'm just like, oh, you know, Queen Elizabeth, she'll always be there, mm -hmm. you know? No. And just, okay. I mourned her because we were a British colony. I am English and Scottish by descent. So yeah, I felt a lot of sadness because I've watched her on television and watched her on news and seen her, you know, portrayed in, in entertainment my entire life. I felt a loss. I really did. Plus the English monarchy and her particularly is like one of the great representations of Western civilization and Christendom, in my opinion. 
And just to see people give her all this hate that she had nothing, you know, for things she had nothing to do with, that's what's, you know, so sickening to me. Yeah. No, and that was like, did you see that one tweet from that professor? Yes. Uh, I think her name is Uju Anya. Yeah, I saw that. I'm trying to find the actual tweet just so I can read it for folks who didn't see it because it was so offensive. <laughs> I didn't, I don't even like, you know, I don't, I'm not, you know, like, You've got more of a queen vibe than I. Like, I could care less about the queen. Yeah. Uh, but like the way that she said, she, she said something like, uh, "No, I can't find it now. I can only find her heartfelt thank you that she's been welcomed back to Twitter now." <laughs> yeah, I think they. I think Twitter deleted <laughs> yeah. it, but yeah, I think she got she got attempt ban. But she just said she wanted to hope she had a very painful death because she presided over all these genocides. I'm like. First of all, you were referring to the Nigerian Revolution, which happened way before Queen Elizabeth was ever on the throne. How is she responsible for that? Uh, the English monarch is just a figurehead. She has no <laughs> political power. She doesn't even vote. She's, not like, she's not like the queen. I mean, she's the queen, but she's, but she's not, not the queen. queen. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, she, if anything, she was, she presided over the dissolution of the British Empire. Because right. most of the former colonies got their independence while she was on the throne. And she was there meeting with people, being a figurehead, showing that they had the full support of the United Kingdom. Uh, Nelson Mandela, famously, Nelson Mandela, when he was out of prison and it was right before apartheid fell, he, she was there for some sort of state dinner and he just showed up. You know, he was not supposed to be there, but she said, no, he should be here. And she had him sit next to her. Nice. At dinner. And they were friends, you know, up until, I'm sure until, I believe he, didn't he die up until his death. Yeah. So I believe Nelson Mandela died. Yeah, I think, I feel like he died in the, the 90s or something. Yeah. But uh, she was just, if you've heard her early speeches, I mean, she Quite gave her. a, yeah, she gave her a speech on her 21st birthday, committing herself to the, uh, to the United to the Empire to the United Kingdom to the British Empire and that she would do her duty above all. And she has. She's kept her private life private, though her children and grandchildren sure haven't. But she <laughs> has <laughs> handled it with grace, yep. dignity, and she did her duty above all. Mm -hmm. And you've got to respect that. Yeah, I mean, imagine being born into that. Imagine being born into you're going to be the monarch figurehead of this country and tough cookies. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and it's just it's 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 baller. And frankly, she did you know she did it with. And for, everybody should be watching the king when he's coronated. You should watch it because it's a once in a lifetime thing that we'll get to see. True. Very true. Yeah, I, wonder, like I watched when they choose a new pope, even though I'm not Catholic, because it could be a once in a lifetime thing. <laughs> but it should be. And then I guess the popes have just been, uh, you know, there's been some, some, uh, there could be like a whole nother conversation about the, the shadiness at the Vatican. And oh, God. Pope, what was that guy? I, it was not the current one, but Ratzinger, I think was the one before yeah. the current one. And yeah. he was a shady son of a gun. He, they all are. They thought there's not been one completely pious pope. Unless you go all the way back to maybe the Apostle Peter, if he existed. If he existed, right? Yeah, no. I think, I feel like the Vatican is probably like one of the most corrupt organizations on the face of the planet at this point, just due to the number of the amount of money 
and the concentration of power into such a few hands. Absolutely, it is. I mean, <sighs> and, and, and as an atheist, as somebody that is not spiritual at all, I'm just like, why does a very corrupt church have to be one of the cornerstones of Western civilization, which I think is the greatest civilization ever to be on planet Earth? Why does mm -hmm. it have to be such a cornerstone? Dang it. Well, and I think that the faith that uh, the values that we have as a society uh, are not emblematic of the religion as it exists today, but no, they are emblematic of the original, you know, the original values, the original spirit. And I think that's the way that we keep it alive, uh, you know, by embracing, you know, like these ideas of, of brotherhood and fraternity and uh, working out our things out through dialogue as opposed to violence of controlling ourselves before we try to control other people. A lot of these things are, you know, that, that were there. And if you get, if you dig into the original sort of Bible stories and the morals and the teachings there, um, but, you know, as it, as the church exists today, you've got a couple of churches, you know, around the country, it's going to really break down to your, your local priest, your local bishop. Absolutely. Um, and there are some churches that have, you know, more, you know, Prague views and are less uh, tied to the Catholic church itself and the, the, the hierarchy there. I think you need standards as a society and the church was our source of standards for thousands of, for thousands of years, at least hundreds of years here in mm -hmm. the U S totally. And so I think I've seen a breaking away, even though I'm not religious, I'm, I've seen a breaking away in a, in a kind of a decay in our society from having standards. And I think that's so bad. I don't know how we can get the standards back in a secular way that will, you know, make without saying that we need a good injection of religion, I don't know what else to say. Well, we are poised for a revival. The only thing that we need really to happen is a, a, another large, you know, calamity or some sort of tragedy. And the, you know, that we're in the, what are we in the 2020s now? So by the 2030s, we could have a whole new revival of spiritualism, of, of faith. It's, it's totally possible. And these things do happen. It happened in the, uh, the early 20th century, uh, around the post, uh, great depression period. So I'm going to start seeing my atheist friends start throwing tomatoes at me because I said that. <laughs> But we do. We need an injection of standards and morals. And this is kind of what the radical left does, right? They degrade standards, morals, boundaries, you know, around things that we, we that were put there for the protection of the culture and the individuals involved. Like, you know, for example, mm -hmm. the age standards for, you know, like sexual activity, you know, like they... Mm -hmm. And they're, they're blurring that through the use of the trans kids and the gay kids and the drag kids. And because yeah. these uh, the, the activities are so popular and trendy, it's really easy for them to use that as a, as a, you know, a wedge to get the, get the door open. Exactly. Before you know it, you've got states like California, you know, basically calling themselves like a, a trans kid uh, sanctuary state. Where they'll, you know, basically they, the idea there is that if any other state makes uh, transitioning, you know, illegal for minors, then California will not only, you know, protect you, but they won't allow extradition. And it, at that point, it gets kind of real, you know, almost civil. So they're going to rip 
kids away from their parents if their parents don't. So here's like, imagine the scenario, right? You've got a, a, a family getting divorced. Mom wants to trans the kid. Dad says, no, that's my son. He's not a woman. Uh, mom takes the kid, runs to California. Dad has no recourse and the state will automatically side with mom. Regardless, you know, mom has a personality disorder. Mom has a drug problem. You know, they don't care. Really what they care about is that mom is on the right side of history, which is actually the wrong side of history. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, she's perceived as Prague. And so they defend her and they indulge her. All the while, this dad in his home state, you know, maybe he, she gets convicted, uh, you know, in absentia of kidnapping. And who knows, you know, what other charges related to transitioning of the child. You pretty much would have to get the father to send some sort of private investigator or something into California to le- to basically kidnap the kid back. This is what, yeah, this is, and this is where it's very dangerous. Now you've got competing law enforcement apparatus. <laughs> it's dangerous. It's, you know, this is Civil War territory. This is how these things get kicked off. And exactly. one, one wonders, you know, where we're going to end up down the line, yeah. but. I mean, slavery was the big moral tipping point of the first civil war is abortion or, uh, abortion and child cutting, cutting going to be the next tipping point. I mean, it's possible, right? People feel really passionate about these issues. You know, that the pro side of the argument feels like this is, you know, life-saving healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it, that boggles my mind, but that's what they believe. And they believe it so fervently. And then on the right, you know, we've got, you know, abortion is, and is murder and these, these medical procedures are child abuse. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, how do you resolve those, those dialectics? Like you have this, there's such an extreme disparity, uh, you know, they're so far apart from each other. It's mm-hmm. like, how do you compromise on that issue? And especially, you know, neither side is willing to compromise. Uh, oh, Roe versus Wade. Th- I have such mixed feelings about that. I, I am anti-abortion 100%. I would never have one myself. I just, but I'm also pro-choice because who am I to insert myself into the doings of another person? Um, But I think on that, if we had kept it safe, legal, and rare, which I think 99% of this country could have agreed on, but instead it was pushed to the point that you could abort fetuses at eight, nine months. And I mean, they're starting, they were starting to try to have it so that they were talking about post-birth abortions. Yeah. As like, so a you just legal, kill a kid, just kill a baby, you know? I think very famously, the governor of uh, Virginia uh, was mm-hmm. asked about it. This guy, Northam something. And uh, he was like, well, the baby would be made very comfortable. And then uh, a discussion would ensue with the doctors and the parents about what would be the next uh, best way to approach the situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like, so basically you're going to make the baby comfortable. And then if mom and the doctor decide it's not in mom and mom's best interest, you're going to off the baby. Like, why wouldn't you just put it up for adoption at that point? Exactly. Like, what? You've done all the hard work. Just, just like, No, we're just going to, you know, and you know why? Because if you kill that baby, you have a very valuable resource in terms of human biochemical compounds. You have little organs, you've got stem cells, you've got lots of very valuable material that you can harvest 
from that dead baby. And this is also a part of the abortion industry that wasn't being discussed uh, in general, is that this is another thing that they were doing with the aborted fetal material. And this was, you know, this is like a multi-million dollar a year industry. You know, they're taking this fetal material and selling it to pharmaceutical and other scientific research companies because it allows them to generate stem cells. They can also generate, you know, uh, human cell lines that you can use for drug testing. There's a lot of very valuable and lucrative stuff you can do with, you know, fresh human tissue from a fetus or a, a, a freshly murdered baby. But these are not things that get discussed and this is the dangerous rhetoric that i like to bring up on the internet here oh it's oh i knew that stuff happened i mean it's just like soil it green is people you mm -hmm. know it, it, it's the dirty little secret um yeah and and, so, know, and, and if, if you lose it in terms of miscarriages or actual abortions to save the life of the mother or in terms of rape or incest sure use those sales but there was no way that a abortion should ever have become just standard everyday birth control. And that's what it was becoming. Yeah. And we were seeing, again, we were seeing more and more of that extreme push, you know, or tolerance for late term abortions and even discussion mm -hmm. of post birth abortions, which is a, a really weird way to say infant side or, or yeah. baby murder. You're killing a baby. You're literally murdering that baby. Yeah. It's like in your uh, post take it, abortion. Take it back to uh, the movie, The Omen, where when Gregory Peck found the remains of his actual baby, it had a it had a hole in its skull where somebody had pretty much killed it on birth so they could switch the baby with the Antichrist. And he's like, they murdered him as soon as he was born. How is that any different? It's not. Really isn't. <laughs> really isn't. Um, and I guess on that note, we can wrap it up. Uh, Tracy, you can let everyone know they can find you, Keto and Crime, on YouTube. You know, keto and crime, uh, crime with a K over on uh, YouTube. Uh, if you like true crime, horror, and dark history, I'm your girl. Like to see you over there. Yes, as you can tell by this conversation, we definitely did a little jaunt through true crime and dark history, <laughs> <laughs> the dark side of gay literature. Exactly. Um, please, 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 folks, don't forget to like, comment, subscribe to the channel if you haven't yet. If this is your first video, I appreciate each and every one of my subscribers. We have like 930 some now. We're so close to that 1K, that, that barrier, which I think once we get over that, we can actually potentially apply for monetization. I mean, wouldn't that yeah. be good? Um, so thanks, guys, for watching. Thanks again, Tracy, for joining us. Absolutely, and anytime. We will be back again soon with another one. I'm going to end the recording. Bye-bye.